for the week of October 18th, 2020. This is Star Wars TV Talk, where we dive deep into every Star Wars TV and Disney Plus streaming series, as well as all the latest news coming out of Lucasfilm. With the release of Mandalorian Season 2 quickly approaching, John and I continue our discussion on the first season of Disney Gallery. This week, we are taking on John's favorite aspect of the Mandalorian series, the revolutionary effects used for the show. We are discussing episodes 4, 5, and 6, technology, practical, and process. John, what did you think of these three episodes? Oh, these were uh, episodes after my own heart. Uh, We touched on a little bit last week um, that a younger version of me aspired to be the next George Lucas or Steven Spielberg. And uh, so I steeped myself for several years in the visual effects that were used to, to bring those movies to bear back in the day. Uh, and so I, you know, I loved it. I, I, I knew all the key players. I knew the Stan Winston's I knew, you know, um, the John Dykstra's like I, it, that was definitely uh, something that I was really, really big on when I was younger. So, being able to peek in on how far things have come and the processes that they developed for this show and really just what a perfect marriage it was to bring in Favreau and uh, let him basically use ILM and Lucasfilm as as his playground because really like where else are you going to go to be able to realize uh, some of the technologies that, that he wanted to try and exploit for the show. So this was great. This was, oh, just too much fun to watch and rewatch. It was so cool to see something like this because this was one of the things that everyone felt like they're they're going to miss or that they're missing from the new trilogy of films. We don't feel like we're going to get kind of a documentation on how the sausage was made, uh, if you will. But this one, we dive so deep into some of the stuff that they're using. It was super cool. And for me, it was everything that Favreau learned in his experience talking about Jungle Book and Lion King and then adding that to the Mandalorian really is something cool. And he does that because he's basically like, you know what? It's not a mistake that Lucasfilm picked me to lead the first live action TV series. And so I thought that it was really cool to see that aspect of it and and him bringing in everything he's learned from, of course, those two movies. But then again, Iron Man and Zathora, which are things that you may not think about when in terms of John Favreau's revolutionary ideas or <laughs> cinematic artistry, but then you're like, Oh, I can see where he got all this stuff from. Yeah. They do a great job of laying out sort of the, the progression of techniques that he's used over the last 15 years or so, because really there's a story there. There's a narrative. There's a very clear path from, from a to B um, for how he went from struggling with, all the compositing limitations of blue screen and how do you make it look realistic when you're in a a very densely lit environment and you want your camera to be able to move free and all of the, the constraints of trying to work without a a practical location uh, and, and try and achieve something that is photorealistic. That's, that's been a constant thorn in his side. And, and because of that, he's been finding novel solutions as he went. It started with really rudimentary interactive lighting where it was just basically just, you know, black and white lights that were in sequence, uh, with whatever action supposed to be going on around the, you know, the live action photography to give them just a little bit 
better of a starting point to try and marry in the environment. And so, you know, he takes that and, and he's not quite satisfied with that. And so as soon as VR becomes practical for them to use as a previous tool and, 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 and uh, basically like an onset in the moment dailies kind of a thing where you can see a rough version of the composited scene mm-hmm. uh, live while you're actually setting up your shots. Uh, so, you know, he, he fell in love with that technology and then needed to take that to the next level in the Lion King. And finally it all comes to a head with the volume and uh, it's just, geez. Yeah. For someone like me, this is, this is about the, the funnest thing you can watch because this, I, I don't know. It's, it's just, they touch on it, but it feels like the culmination of everything that Lucas could have imagined trying to, you know, strive for with the other trilogies that, that he was producing and, uh, Oh, what, what fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, this is the guy who launched the Marvel cinematic universe and that's Mm kind of where he's laying the foundations for this, especially where it's kind of, he's, he's starting to get away from the fix it and post approach. And he brings that up. And I mean, that is such an interesting concept where it's like, okay, I know what I want to put in CG. So I'm going to have that shadow cast on the actor in the scene. So it looks better and I don't have to do even more work. And then this is something that has interest you the most. And so I'll I'll allow you to take this away. Um, But the real time rendering, as soon as you heard that they were doing (laughs) this, this was something that you were just like, oh, my gosh, I want to find out more about this. And I want to dive deeper in this. I'll let you take it away on real-time rendering here oh just well where to start the thing is we've already talked about this on a couple of casts so i don't want to be redundant but i could talk about this for hours because it just it sparks my imagination to realize that they've finally gotten to the point where they can move the cameras in real time wherever they want you know you know put them on whatever kind of hardware rig or crane or dolly do whatever you want with the cameras it doesn't matter just pretend you're on location and it's going to make sense in the frame. That's basically what we've gotten to with these video screens is by using the Unreal Engine to uh, not just render sort of a backdrop on LED screens. What it's actually doing is it's tracking the camera motion and it is manipulating what's behind the frame in real time so that as you move the frame, the geometry of the scene changes with the camera so that you can achieve what's called a parallax effect. So it, it it's basically depth is inherent to a 3d video game. Like that's the nature yeah. of it. You can move around the world because there's 3d geometry that in real time is adjusted based on your viewport. So they basically said, okay, instead of a, a, a first person shooter where it's like your computer screen is your eyeballs into the game. Mm-hmm. Let's, make the camera like a VR player in a game and let's project onto the walls exactly what would be happening if that person was moving around a real 3d environment. So all that depth gets rendered behind the camera. So in frame or in front of the camera, I should say. So in frame. And because of that, uh, they can get photorealistic depth of field. Mm -hmm. They can get whatever kind of motion you need to be able to track action shots. Like, you know, our principles can be moving around in the frame, doing whatever they want to do. And the background is just going to be there and it's going to be casting light on them. So something like Mando, where he's a very reflective character with all his metal armor, they don't have to try and meticulously rip out the green and impose, you know, some sort of reflection after the fact into his armor to try and make it look like he's in a real location. Yeah. The LEDs effectively 
for all intents and purposes, as far as physics is concerned, as far as light is concerned, it is a real environment. It's casting everything onto him that a real environment would. And so you're not going to get closer to being able to realize the star Wars universe on screen than what they're doing with the volume and where they take it from there and how much more the, the technology is able to just open up, um, a, a greater tool set, a greater palette that they can draw on for the second season and bigger productions, like why they're not going to be using these for movies. Like, obviously this is going to be translated into so many productions. As soon as they have the technology sort of commercialized and simplified enough that anyone can pick up the tool and run with it, they're going to be licensing this off. And, and, you know, every, everyone's going to be taking this and running with it. It's, it's that big of a, a revolution that there's not going to be any sort of, sci-fi action adventure fair that isn't going to do some of its shooting inside of a volume. And that's just so exciting to see that sea change happening and just how quickly it came together when you have the right creative people like John Favreau with the right creative people at ILM and a very motivated company above them saying, you know what? Let's throw some money at this. Like let's do this right. And Kathleen Kennedy to a credit for anyone who, you know, questions what her value is. She's a producer. She's a connector, right? You can see from this documentary that there's a lot of pieces that had to come together and without someone with the clout to be able to advocate for them on Mm -hmm. both sides and be able to bring all the right people together and basically clear a path for them to be able to push forward with this technology, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah, A shorter sighted producer would have said, you want to build what? No, just do it on green screen the way we've always done it. Like that could have been the end of the conversation. But to Kathleen Kennedy's credit, she has enough uh, love of where the industry could go when they embrace technology, which is inherent to the Lucasfilm philosophy of filmmaking. (laughs) She has enough reverence for that notion that she cleared a path and John Favreau took it and ran with it and his directors took it and ran with it. And what they put up on screen as a result is just it, it, it marvels me every time I look at it now. Yeah. Well, and this was something that he started to develop specifically for something like the Lion King, because it's unlike the Jungle Book, because in the Jungle Book, you actually have an actor sitting there, the boy Mowgli, actually there in front of the camera. So you have something that you can capture with the Lion King. It was like, okay, we need to do something more to capture this a little bit better. And so that's where he got into like, okay, we're going to prepare a lot for this. And then what if we put the background out there instead of instead of this green screen and so then lucasfilm like you said allowed him to run with it and was like you know what yeah you want it to be this entire garage sure and so my biggest takeaways from this was that it was what george has always wanted to do (laughs) what what he wanted to do with star wars and it was really cool listening to kathleen kennedy and even bryce dallas howard who of course has the background where she grew up knowing george lucas where she they're both saying this is what George wanted. He's always said that one day we're going to be able to film these movies in our garage because this is exactly what you want to do. And he was someone who was notoriously frustrated with having to remove the reflection from C-3PO and (laughs) add all that stuff in episode three. So this, like you said, it eliminates that. But then the second thing is from the acting standpoint, you have John Carlos Esposito who's saying like, wow, this was amazing. Like I got this sense of what uh, Moff Gideon's supposed to be looking at. I have the the impact of how massive this universe is because I can look out and see the sunset. I can look out and see what I'm actually supposed to see. And uh, that's definitely a game changer. 
And it's going to be something where it's a high upfront cost, maybe. And especially after Lucasfilm is going to trademark this thing because they probably are going <laughs> to do something with it. But it's something that producers are going to invest in because in the long run, it's going to save money and it's going to allow even lower budget action flicks to be able to do something like this. And it's just it's good for filmmaking altogether. Yeah, I fear that within the next few years, a, a production house like the Asylum or something is going to be able to get their hands on a, a low budget version of this. And they're going to be able to turn out schlock that like looks as good as Star Wars. And that's a very scary prospect, but you know what? That's, that's the double edge yeah. sword that is, you know, technology, right? Um, it all comes down to who's wielding it and how effectively they can tell a story with it. And the nice thing is the people involved on Mandalorian, they're trying to tell some really fun stories. Um, you know, we talked a lot about, uh, the, the legacy and, and, uh, the, the way they were approaching the storytelling last time. Uh, so we don't really need to dig too deep on that, but, uh, it's great to not just see them sort of tinkering in their garage, so to speak, coming up with these great tools. But it's the passion that's driving them mm-hmm. forward. And the finished product is speaking volumes about really, you know, why they would want to develop a technology like this and really what its potential has when it's put in the right people's hands. And oh, it's just, I don't know. I could gush, I could gush all day. But to your point, um, not only did Giancarlo Esposito have a, a nice line about like what a difference a day makes. Like mm-hmm. when you're not staring at a blue wall but you're actually staring at the sun that you need to like you know feel like you're being basked in so that you can project that and and react to it and and draw deep and find emotion from your surrounding uh how much easier is it when you can actually see your surrounding and carl weathers talked to that really really effectively he was talking about the lava scene where they're in the boat going down the lava river and he was saying like you know you're in this boat and you see the lava mm-hmm. and you see you know, the tunnel getting bigger in front of you and daylight coming at you and you see the tunnel behind you getting smaller. And there's a part of you that's saying, don't fall in the lava. Like mm-hmm. how much easier is it for an actor to access, you know, genuine emotion and reaction and have a, a cadre of actors all react at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, because there is some real stimuli that's that they can all react to uh, rather than them all just kind of having to uh, make it up, you know, assuming what might be beyond the blue screen. He was saying like, how liberating is it to be able to be in a scene and, and have all of that feeding back into your performance and allowing you to have, you know, a better connection with your, your fellow actors as well, because they're all seeing what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. So not only is this a, a technical breakthrough, but it can elevate the storytelling just by enabling actors to be at their best mm-hmm. as if they were on a real location, but you can't shoot on lava. You know, the union would never allow it. So how great that they can still have, you know, the, the emotional impact of shooting on lava. And, and to get real selfish with this, it's also (laughs) good for things like rides at these parks. I mean, universal and Disneyland have been doing aspects of this with like soaring California and then the universal studios rides where, you know, you go into this garage and then that garage becomes the ride. And it's, it's basically the same type of theory, but this even extends it more. Now you don't need to be wearing, you know, glasses. You don't need to have a laser projector above you. This is something that's, <laughs> that's projected behind it. And, and it's really just a cool thing that we can experience and will allow fans to immerse themselves in the stories even more, which honestly, that's what fans love at the it's a it's towards the top of their list that they love about Star Wars is that it's so immersive. Mm-hmm. And so if you can immerse yourself more through that and one of the other things that they add on. Um, which we'll get into is using things like a VR and Oculus VR to figure out the feel of a scene before you start shooting it. Mm-hmm. To me, 
if I'm Lucasfilm and I'm Disney, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to start turning these VR scenes into something that we can put on the Oculus and sell for 60 bucks. Because if I can relive being the Mandalorian in some of these scenes, like I'm doing that. Sure. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing when Carl Weathers was talking about the lava flow. I was thinking, well, you know, there's a ride, you know, like this technology, being able to put people in a volume and have the world actually, you know, just kind of travel around them to the point where they genuinely feel like they're in some otherworldly environment. That's going to be very visceral. And, you know, yeah, you add in some, some wind effect and a little water spray and you can put them anywhere you want in the universe. Uh, so I'm sure that there's someone deep inside, uh, you know, Disney's, what do they call it? The innovation lab or what, what is it? The, the imagine, um, Imagineers, Imagineers. Yeah. So yeah, somebody's obviously working hard on incorporating these same kind of technologies into, you know, fan forward entertainment. Um, yeah, we'll have to wait and see what kind of fruit that bears. If, uh, you know, people are ever able to go out in public again, maybe, you know, they'll be able to launch a fun ride. Uh, we'll see what the future holds, but, um, yeah, you're, you're not wrong about, uh, just how, not only did the volume change things, but the, the VR previs. And I don't know if we want to jump ahead too much because this is talking a little bit more about the process mm-hmm. uh, topic that they covered, but not only did they realize that the volume was going to be a game changer for what they could shoot and put up on screen, but it forced them to really rejigger the whole production process because mm-hmm. typically, you know, you do a little bit of prep, you know, maybe you do some storyboards, maybe you'd block out some scenes like you'd try and have clear in mind, at least the director would have clear in mind what they'd like to achieve so that when they get into the space, they can do it. But with the volume, well, you need to have those scenes rendered and you need to, you know, you've got 75 feet of space to work with. So, you know, you've got to make sure that you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's and absolutely everything has been mapped out. And so they said, well, we've got all these technologies from the Lion King why don't we just build the episode before we build the episode? So the directors came in two months early. Mm -hmm. They said, we're not going to have a lot of post-production efforts like we would on a big feature film. But what we're going to do is we're going to previs everything. You know, we're going to measure twice, cut once, and we're going to have these scenes developed in CG Mm -hmm. so that we know exactly how this episode is going to play. And we don't have to spend a lot of time collecting footage that, you know, is options, right? Like we, we need to be really efficient in the volume. So we're going to make sure that we know exactly what we need. We're going to get the right shots, the right angle, and we're going to really just have this all mapped out. And that's where the VR came in, where the directors could put on a VR headset, their stunt guys could put on motion tracking suits and they could go into a soundstage somewhere and they could map out a fight scene and have all the choreography basically, you know, interpreted digitally so that they could then render it uh, you know, not only in real time, but also after the fact to create perfect pre-visualization. So yeah, they've gone leaps and bounds beyond what a traditional television show would ever think would be possible. And it's a credit uh, again to Lucasfilm to be willing to think outside the box and enable their, their talent to really reinvent how a TV show should work. Mm-hmm. Cause even something like game of Thrones never achieved this kind of level of sophistication and how they were approaching uh, their special effects. So yeah, across the board, they're just, they're taking technology and they're doing, they're, they're realizing the dream of all of these things that we've been talking about and that have been hinted at for 30 years. Uh, It's all coming to a head now and, and it's starting to pay dividends and it's so, so nice to see. 
And this is something that, of course, Taika Waititi and Favreau brought up as approaching it kind of like a superhero reshoot. Like, this is the Mm -hmm. first cut. This is what we want. We're going to bring the actors in to get the quote unquote reshoots. And it it eliminates a lot of that tedious. Let's bring them in for another three weeks. Let's pay these actors a little bit more money. Let's pay the crew a little bit more money to get them in here for another three weeks to shoot like 500 scenes. When when you have this approach, it's like, no, we're on a time constraint. So we need to get this done in a week versus a month. So let's have it plotted out a week prior going into it and then get it all done. And then also when you have a guy like Filoni who has experience developing fully animated scenes, (laughs) he can then contribute to this and make it even better. So now you're just like, okay, I know exactly if I'm a director, I know exactly what I'm doing, what I need to shoot and how long that's going to take me because we've already got it all mapped out. So I hope that they continue to use previs on all the Star Wars projects from film all the way down to the live action shows that we're going to get later on because it truly is a game changer and it changes the process. It also shows the dedication that this crew and cast have for something like the Mandalorian. They all are on the same page. They know that the Mandalorian has to work for Disney Plus. And so that was one of the things where it was like this love story to George Lucas where it's <laughs> like, "Hey, we're 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 fulfilling your dream for you, man." Um and then also bringing in just state of the art technology and even practical effects where they're calling back to the original films and they bring in like <laughs> right. It seems so obvious to make the child animated. It th- that would that would be the the number mm-hmm. one thing if if I'm someone who's keeping a super big secret on this show. <laughs> and I'm having children come in on the third episode. Real life right. children come in. I'm having a, you know, green screen puppet yep. motion capture. But no, they go the route. Uh-uh. Animatronic. We want this to be real. We want it to be something that the actors interact with. Yeah. And what a difference that made as well. It's interesting. Favreau said something very important, and it's something that I've noticed myself in something that I I believe quite strongly. He said, you know, we originally were going to do it digital. That was the obvious way to go. Um, But, you know, once we realized how much better an option it was to go with the puppet, um, there were still some scenes like wide shots where it just wasn't practical to have, you know, have to paint out puppeteers behind the baby in a, you know, an open field or something or coming down a ramp or whatever, where it's just, you, you just can't do it with mm-hmm. puppetry for a, a puppet that size. So there, there were situations where they did have uh, a CGI double of baby Yoda that they used mm-hmm. in some situations where practicality dictated. But he said the mandate was always, we will never let the digital version do something that mm-hmm. the puppet couldn't do. Yeah. And that's so important because when you have, directors with no restraint or effects houses with no restraint, they will always make their CGI creations as fluid and almost otherworldly as possible. Like real world physics is always a hindrance Mm -hmm. to the imagination. And so people without restraint, they will, they will let their digital characters do more than Mm -hmm. you could practically achieve in the real world. And because of that, the eye catches it and the eye says, Oh, that's not real. That's moving too fast or that's moving too smooth or they can jump too high or they, you know, they, they shouldn't be able to bend that way. Or, you know, people don't blink like that. Like we intuitively can pick up on bad CG. And so by having that restraint to say, like, even if we're going to do something as CG, 
we're limiting ourselves mm-hmm. to the motion of uh, of the puppet and the articulation of the puppet and the facial movements of the puppet and we're going to make them a little jerkier and we're going to you know make his movement a little stilted because it'll marry perfectly and people won't question it and for some reason even though a puppet doesn't really look real like you know yeah. that the motions are you know very limited that that there's a there's a, a range of articulation with a puppet that you have to stay within just because it's rubber for whatever reason, just because it lives in that real space and there's some human involved in dealing with it in real time. It's just so much more enjoyable to watch. And by making sure that they, even on these small little details, they don't cheap out. They don't phone it in. They don't just, you know, I don't have time to really stand over the the CG guy's shoulder while he's animating this. So whatever he turns in, we're just going to go with no, the directors were on it. And that's the stuff that I love, like the real care and attention to detail and the respect paid to yeah. an art form that you hardly ever get to see utilized outside a Sesame workshop. Yeah. And this is something that is uh, extremely interesting, especially since you brought up the whole we're not going to allow a puppet to do something that this or the CG to do something right. the puppet can't. And where they came to points where that was just kind of unavoidable with something like IG-11, where it's this massive droid. They were like, you know what? Why don't we add a character trait to him that makes him a little more jerky so that you believe that that's what's going on, that it's not the the mix between, you know, the stop motion or the practical effects and the CG. You actually notice it as that's just IG-11. And we all have movies that we could probably call back to where we've noticed, oh, that was CG. That Mm -hmm. was different because they're having them do exactly what you said, something that the puppet can't do. Mm -hmm. But with this, I never really picked up on when it was CG and when it was practical. I think the biggest thing I think the biggest thing I picked up on where it was CG was obviously where IG eleven breaks Jason Sudeikis's risk and (laughs) like but that that's just because okay, obviously they have to CG that out because (laughs) no one's getting their wrist actually broken here. Right. Yeah, no, it's uh IG eleven is another great example of where the creative eye of the the people involved is just so on point. They had a lighting reference uh, maquette mm-hmm. that they had on set just to be able to have some guidance for the CG animators. And they realized that it's so much more charming just to watch it wobble mm-hmm. than, you know, to be some sort of like fully uh, articulated, animated, freestanding, free moving droid. Uh, how much more fun is it to think that much like the original trilogy where a lot of stuff that came out of the the creature shop was, well, you know, it was just, it was basically barely held together and it had a couple servos. So you were really lucky if you could get the one arm to move the way that you wanted. And, and you know, you're not getting an elbow, you know, you get one joint. That's all this droid has that we could afford to build into it. So you're just going to make do with the one motion that we can offer you. And they made hay with it. And, um, uh, I, I think about uh, Return of the Jedi, where um, R2-D2 is being tortured under Jabba's palace by, uh, you know, some old medical droid. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like this this really charming thing where you can tell that basically the droid's arms are like fused to the the thing that he's going to use to to brand or, or it's not R2-D2. It's some other droid that when they're walking by, mm-hmm. they see like a gonk droid yeah. or something upside down getting branded like its feet are being uh, burned. And you can tell that it's just basically like a stationary droid mm-hmm. and that only like the shoulders can move, you know, this apparatus. And it's very quaint and it's very limited, but you can go back and watch that scene a hundred times over and it's still fun and it still works. And they realize that, yeah, it is, it is more fun when droids are kind of jerky and limited. And so 
especially something like IG-11, which is an homage to IG-88, which was basically, you know, never moved on screen. It just kind of stood there. Right. Uh, they said, well, you know, there's nothing saying that we have to do this in CG. And so, yeah, they, they found a nice middle ground where, like you said, wide shots, action shots where the droid needs to do something serious. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. CG. But everything else, why? You yeah. know, why go overboard needlessly when it's more fun not to? And then... Once again, immersing the actor in that experience. One of the biggest things that I thought was funny, and I kind of, you know, took a mental note of this for my rewatch was Werner Herzog, who he was, (laughs) uh, he was on set and basically was directing the animatronic child to like, Mm -hmm. as he would with the normal actor, like, okay, what if we tried it this way? And then what if we tried it that? And like, why don't you turn your head this way a little bit? And so it's something that he got so immersed in that and he calls them out. He he was the one that was kind of calling <laughs> right. out the the other people on set and saying, you guys are cowards. Why are you selling out to the CG system? Put the baby back in there. And it made me think like, <laughs> what if his line, the famous line that everyone quotes, the I would like to see the baby. What if that wasn't an actual uh, line <laughs> for the film? What if that's Werner Herzog saying, hey, I want to see this baby again. Well, it's very sincere. And yeah, it is fun because he's, you know, a, a, obviously a you know renowned director in his own right. Mm-hmm. So if anyone is going to have the the clout to be able to stamp their feet and say, no, you don't need to get an empty plate shot. Like, don't give yourself that safety net trust that, you know, these puppeteers that I've been watching do amazing things are going to be able to pull off the scene. Like you, you need to go all in on the puppet. And because he was involved in the first couple episodes, he kind of forced them to get out of their comfort zone and really double down mm-hmm. on just embracing the puppet as much as they possibly could. And so, yeah, it is funny. The, the little anecdote where the, the baby takes on such a presence of its own that he's looking at it when he's trying to, you know, workshop and offer stage direction and performance direction. Uh, and he's forgetting that, you know, it's the guys with the remote controls mm-hmm. five feet off to the side that are listening and articulating back and, you know, allowing him to have this moment where he's forgetting that his scene yeah. partner is a puppet and oh, just, you know, how charming, how yeah. charming. And uh, it, it's funny that, you know, we spent the first half of this podcast talking about all these brilliant innovations and we're going to spend the second half of it talking about how they're going overboard with pulling in, older technologies because they they realize that at the end of the day it's whatever's going to put the most authentic yeah. enjoyable visual up on screen that they're going to go with so if they can get a better performance and engage Werner Herzog on his terms by using a puppet rather than an empty space you know with a, a green lighting reference in the middle of it if that's going to get a better performance and that's going to make the production more charming and keep everyone excited about it then of course mm-hmm. you're going to double down on the technology that's going to you know give you the best results and again the production is wise enough to recognize that even though it's way more expensive to spend three months mm-hmm. letting Stan Winston studios build you the perfect baby Yoda model, then, you know, to have any CG artist, you know, do that in a couple days in a computer, this is what we're going to do because that's how much care and love we have for this production. Well, on another level that is something that people don't think about a lot, but it, it happens so much. So for instance, even in modern day, you have a you know a rocket from the avengers who is not being played by bradley cooper bradley cooper is not on set he is not right. voicing rocket in the scene he's not doing any of that stuff in the scene because he's typically recording his lines after all that has been filmed mm-hmm. but they kind of did the flip for uh nick nolte for uh quill where it was let's bring him in first let's have him 
do seven or eight takes of saying his lines in different ways so that the mocap artist can respond to the different lines as she's listening to them as they're about to film. And then she is responding in real time to some of these things. So that's kind of like the old technology, but with a new twist put on it. And I thought like, that's how they've always should be doing it. They always should be doing it that way because it's more authentic for the scene. Yeah. It's interesting. So not, she wasn't in mocap, but the person that's under the animatronic mask, Right. right? There was a, a woman that was actually playing Quill, uh, on set. But yeah, she said that she had to steep herself in his performance. Mm-hmm. So she had audio recordings and because she had to familiarize herself with Nick Nolte's performance, it helped her to, you know, hopefully be really sharp about like, if you're going to look somewhere, you need to kind of know when the dialogue is going to most organically be cueing you to want to look somewhere. And then the remote operators that's working her eyes and her eyebrows need to be just a half step ahead of you on that because your eyes go where your head goes before your head goes. So there's a, there's a shorthand that all these people had to have to be able to really do justice to that character. And because they had Nick Nolte's performance for them all to basically use as sort of their touchstone, their baseline, it allowed everyone to be on top of their game. And the performance is great because you, you, you feel for that character and you don't separate him from Nick Nolte. Like I, I feel like that's Nick Nolte and heavy makeup when I'm yeah. watching the show. And I think that probably says everything that needs to be said. It, you, you're right by having Nick Nolte be intrinsic to the character from the day everyone shows up for filming. Mm-hmm. It just makes everything a little more cohesive. So again, great yeah. direction and great technical direction. And that also brings in where they have this mixture of the old and new where they have, they probably showed Nolte what his character looked like because they mm. had built the scene in previs. So they were probably able to show him like, Hey, this is what he looks like. This is his backstory. You do you Nick Nolte. How do you think this character is going to respond to <laughs> some of these things? And even, yeah, like you said, it looks like he's in makeup because his expressions are like, ah, that kind of looks like that kind of looks like a Nick Nolte expression, like where he his eyebrows go up or his face frowns at at the Mandalorian for not being able to to do something that Mandalorians are just always able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just the mixture of the old and new is really what stood out to me in this episode where they were able to do that. It feels like Star Wars. It feels like an homage to george lucas as well as like hey we're taking this to the next level right yeah that's exactly right i'm i'm not gonna harp on it because (laughs) like i said i could gush all day over this kind of stuff but yeah they 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 just really i i feel like they studied all the same things that i studied Mm -hmm. you know like favreau even says it in um one i think the first episode he talks about how you know when he was younger he experienced star wars and then that made him go in and pursue the types of things that he knew influenced lucas Mm -hmm. so not only was he getting steeped in the type of cinema that would help him to really walk a good line with this production but i'm sure that he was also taking in all of the you know lore about the the technical breakthroughs and the approaches that they took and so for all of that sort of like deep long-term memory to be able to sort of resurface right when you need it uh, it just, it warms my heart because yeah. it's, it's, it's all, they're saying all the things that I would hope that a, a star Wars production or the people 
leading a Star Wars production would be concerned with. And it's nice mm-hmm. to see that they they truly are. Yeah. And the general consensus of The Mandalorian is that fans love it. Even the internet mm-hmm. troll fans that, yes. that like to complain, they seem to love it. And one of right. the things that stood out to me as this is a crucial reason why everyone has such a love for this is that Favreau had the approach where, and he says it in the uh, the third episode, where he basically says, you know, I don't want to approach the Mandalorian being inspired by Star Wars. I want to approach it being inspired by the things that inspired Star Wars so that right. it feels more natural. And that's, once again, like honoring George Lucas, honoring his legacy. And then it gives you a little more mental flexibility because you're not so you're not thinking so much about the inspirations of Star Wars. You're more so thinking about the lone wolf and cub, which is what he brings up. Like, yep, that inspired mm-hmm. me. You guys were speculating about that. I mean, we had bell <laughs> on our show last year who says this feels awfully familiar to yeah. lone wolf and cub. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because there's, there's some franchises where you realize that after a certain amount of time, they start to become too self-referential. Like the way the characters are written, they start to be written sort of as takes on themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the first chapter of any, you know, good franchise, like in this case, a new hope Lucas didn't have any reference material for his characters to draw on. So he was pulling from his influences. So mm-hmm. he had a wide swath of creative options to pull into these characters. And so they shine more, you know, they're more vivid characters and the possibilities of what their personalities will be are endless. Mm -hmm. And then as you go down the road and other people pick up the ball and start writing those characters for subsequent chapters, they're looking more at what's already been established and they're not thinking about how to kind of expand and, and let those characters breathe and sort of be willing to let those characters go into uncharted territory because they just see them as what they already have seen from the previous chapters. And so that's very limiting. And at a certain point, yeah, it, 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 it almost feels like these movies kind of just become a parody of themselves mm-hmm. and become very rote. Uh, so again, if you're someone that has the creative forethought to recognize that I don't want to be making a star Wars fan film, mm-hmm. like I don't want to just be rehashing what I've already seen on screen and letting that be the limits of my imagination and where I'm willing to go with the story. But I want to pull back and I want to just, have the freedom that Lucas had when he was writing his original script. And you saw how sprawling Lucas's original script was because there was no end to what he could have put into star Wars. And so much of it got shelved and, you know, repurposed down the road. And by doing that, I think what Favreau is doing is he's setting himself up the same way. The, the possibilities are endless. Mm-hmm. And so you can have star Wars, but you can say, well, I'm going to pull from this Kurosawa film. Yeah. And now we've got a completely different theme than the hidden fortress, you know, like, whereas, Lucas thought that, you know, it was kind of fun how the squabbling bureaucrats kind of were on this meandering mission Um, that inspired a big chunk of a new hope. Well, you know, Favreau says, well, you know, I can pull from things that are just as creatively rich, but they're not the same. And all of a sudden you've got a whole new foundation for a Star Wars story that to me feels so much fresher because it's so much truer to the that inspiration. Um, and again, I'm just going to shut up because I could go on and on and on, but, uh, I think, I think we got to leave it there. Don't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my closing thought on all of this is, I uh, it makes me even more excited that someone like Deborah Chow, who worked on the Mandalorian and saw Fabro's approach to making this as far as 
let's draw on the inspiration of Star Wars right. or of the things that inspired Star Wars instead of yeah. the inspiration of Star Wars itself. Because, and I don't know what we're going to get with Obi-Wan at this point. I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure it could go either way. And the possibilities, I think I love all of them. But one of the things that has been kind of teased, and it's been teased since Deborah Chow has been announced as the as the headliner for this, is it it seems like the reports are coming out that this is kind of an outcast Western story where Obi-Wan mm-hmm. is kind of, you know, the the man in black, if you will, in, in the classic Westerns. Uh, and I hope that that's kind of the case, that it takes on that that grittier tone of we need to feel the pain that Obi-Wan feels. And sure. and Tatooine and whatever he's doing on these uh, on these various missions in the show. So I'm super excited that she was a part of the Mandalorian and saw this. And then, of course, the Mandalorian season two, you're bringing back <laughs> some of the old guys and then you're bringing in some new guys to capture this. And I cannot wait to see where they increase production value for Mandalorian season two. So that that's that's my closing thoughts on this whole this whole trilogy of episodes. Yeah, if they turned out what they turned out in season one, while basically learning and getting up to speed with all this technology and just crafting that vocabulary and just figuring out what the right techniques are, if they were basically inventing all this for season one, and now they've caught their stride and and a bunch of these directors can come back and and have another outing with a production that they're now familiar with and they're confident in, and they know that Lucasfilm has embraced it and is enabling them. Like, I don't think there's going to be a lot of pushback creatively or, you know, I, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of battles being fought yeah. uh, with season two. I feel like everyone's just totally on board. You know, it, they know that they've got something good. So they're saying, let's foster it. Let's just make it great. And uh, so, yeah, they've got the tools, they've got the budget, they've got the directors, they've got the creative talent at the top. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, I'm sure they could blow it, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't think they're gonna. Yeah. I feel like, you know, we might be in for a real treat in a couple weeks. Yeah, well, it is a couple weeks away. I am super <laughs> excited. By the time this episode drops, we're going to be about 10 days away from The Mandalorian Season 2. So I hope that our listeners stick with us throughout our review of Disney Gallery. And please hit that subscribe button and leave us a five-star review. And if you want to catch up with John throughout the week, John, where can they find you? So when I'm not chatting Star Wars over here, I'm chatting SNL at the SNL After Party podcast, which is the largest and arguably most awesome SNL podcast ever. We have retooled for video so people can find us on YouTube if they want to see what we're up to. Um, We've been talking about SNL's 46th season uh, because they're back in studio mid-COVID and uh, it's just creating a, a whole lot of conversation around how do you put on a live show in New York right now. Uh, in the world that we're living in. So there's there's plenty of interesting things happening with SNL and I break it all down at snlpodcast.com or on YouTube, SNL After Party. And you can contact us on Twitter at Star Wars TV Talk and by emailing us at hello at starwarstvtalk.com. You can find our website at starwarstvtalk.com and by searching for Star Wars TV Talk wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the tvtalk.fm network at tvtalk.fm. Thank you so much for listening and may the force be with you always.